The social determinants of health are very important. In terms of education is very important. Stress, all these things play a significant role. Housing, you know, safety, economics, economics, economics. This is True to Your Heart. Lessons on living a healthy, hearty life. Brought to you by Amarin. Welcome to True to Your Heart, where we discuss new ways of looking at your cardiovascular health with leading health and wellness experts. I'm your host, Ron Jaworski, and today we are going to discuss cardiovascular health among minority communities. Joining me now is Dr. Kenton Forte, an assistant clinical professor at SUNY in Buffalo, New York. Dr. Forte has been practicing internal medicine at the Heartbeat Center of Western New York for over 22 years and is an expert cardiologist. He is a member of 11 societies, including the American Heart Association. He's written four publications for a variety of medical journals and spoken at numerous conventions on the topic of cardiology. Today, he's here to discuss the effects of heart disease on minority communities. Welcome, Dr. Forte. It's great to have you on the show. I'm happy to welcome uh, a Western New Yorker as well, because I'm originally from Lackawanna, New York. So I guess we should open this by saying, go Bills. Well, I thank you for uh, giving me that introduction. I'm very glad that you are excited as I am about my Bills. So hopefully this year we can truly make that impact. <laughs> All right. So how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's great to have you. And you know, we all know that heart disease is the most common cause of death for all Americans. And, but African-Americans really are, and, and uh, Hispanics probably face the additional concerns that other people do not face. The, the risk factors for heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, diabetes, major factors. How does heart disease disproportionately affect minority communities? Well, uh, you hit the nail on the head, Ron. I think, you know, when you look at the underlying comorbidities that actually predispose to the development of heart disease, you know, hypertension is one of the uh, most uh, detrimental relative to the Afro-American population. As you may or may not know, the Afro-American population has the highest occurrence of hypertension, not only in the United States, but in the world. It's problematic. And what leads to that probably is many other underpinnings. Obesity. Obesity is a main cause, basically, that actually lends itself to underlying inflammatory problems with the vascular integrity of individuals. That combined with diabetes, which also is a vascular disease, you know, with individuals who are in the Afro-American population they began having diabetes at a very young age. So now the underlying inflammatory process is extended for over a longer period of time and therefore increases their risk for heart disease at even a younger age than their white counterparts. You add hyperlipidemia from the dietary intake that they take. It also contributes. So all these major risk factors play a significant role in the actual causation of heart disease in this population. So we need to modify that by education, 
and basically changing the dietary demands of these individuals. What about the fact that research has shown a gene? Yes. So they talk about there's a genetic predisposition for hypertension in Afro-Americans. And yes, there is some likelihood that that is a causation from some genetic predisposition. And this goes back from the what we call the slavery hypertension hypothesis, whereby they thought that individuals come across the Bering Straits had to retain salt and therefore they became more salt sensitive. There is some likelihood that this is possible, but clearly there are other mechanisms that actually play a significant role in terms of hypertension, vascular, hormonal, cations. So there are many other comorbid or underlying uh, hormonal processes that contribute, and it's not just about the soil gene, although the soil gene does probably play a role and is being studied significantly. Hopefully, we can determine and find what that gene, if it's present, what it is. What are the preventive measures once you know, people can take? Excellent question. 80% basically of, of a person's health is determined by non-clinical factors. The social determinants of health are very important. In terms of education is very important. Stress, all of these things play a significant role. Housing, you know, safety, economics, economics, economics. All of these things add up to much more than just the clinical factors. So we need to get into the actual community and change those dynamics. I belong to an ACO in Buffalo. And what we have basically is we don't wait till the patients come to the clinic. We actually send out what we call healthcare workers within the actual environment of the actual patients. And we collect data. We see what their blood pressures are. We educate them about eating properly. We, so those are the dynamics that's important. We have social workers who help them actually maneuver in terms of getting things done. Transportation is an issue because they can't get to the doctors. So we provide transportation. We pick them up. We bring them to the clinics and take them home. So these are the measures that we must look at relative to not just saying give patients medicine. Medicines are important. But if we can actually do prevention rather than intervention, I think we will make much headway in these individual patients. Dr. Forte, what does healthcare look like in these underserved communities? You know, it's, it's pretty sad because most of the patients won't come until they're deadly sick. They, rather, they, they stay home and they don't seek medical help. And that's why it's important, like I previously said, is we have to go get them to make sure that they get the proper education, the proper understanding of the disease process relative to what is the causation, reduce salt, eating more fruits and vegetables, activity, not staying physically inactive. So all those things are very important to change how those people understand the probable causes of the disease states teaching them about diabetes, what to eat, what not to drink. Don't drink too much pop. Teach them about drinking other liquids that are less sweet so that they don't, these things are, are not taught. You know, most uh, patients go to the physician and the physicians will say, okay, lose weight. Do they know how to lose weight? That is the important, not just tell them lose weight, but give them a guideline on how to lose weight. And that is very important 
that change the actual outlook of the actual community. Dr. Forte, you know, I understand there's in some of these underserved communities, a lack of fresh food, fruits, vegetables. What is the impact of not being able to get proper nutrition, the problems that we now face? You're absolutely right. Most of these uh, communities are food deserts. There's no availability of fresh fruit and vegetables. And even if there were much availability, the problem is cost. Cost is very expensive to actually provide a proper meal for a child. Salads with tomatoes and other vegetables. The problem with that is those children get very hungry very quick from eating that source of food. So it's easier to provide something like going to a fast food outlet, getting food, giving them a burger, which will keep them much more satisfied. This is laden with salt and and fat, which is not good for them. So we have to now create uh, hydrophonics within the community, which way we can actually grow fruits and vegetables and have fish as part of it so that the patients or the individuals can get within their own community. To go to get fresh food and vegetables, they sometimes have to take two buses. Transportation is a problem. Economics relative to getting the buses. These things are issues. So we have to go within the community and actually provide food, now create farms where they can actually grow food and get food, fresh fruit and vegetables. These are important issues that we must look at and take care of. We know the numbers. We've been getting numbers for years. Hypertension, highest in the Afro-American population. Heart disease, highest. Diabetes, highest. We get research over and over. We have to now dwell with the actual social determinants of health, get in there, and change the dynamics. For instance, you are a great, great, you are a great football player. If you keep getting crushed because your offense couldn't help you and you didn't change it, what would happen, right? So that's the same thing. We have to change what we know is wrong and correct it. Obviously, you know, we spoke about nutrition and diet and how important that is. And obesity, obviously a a major problem. What can we do for exercise for people that are facing obesity and challenges with their weight? What do you recommend from an, an exercise plan and moving the body and getting the blood flowing? Great question. So when people hear exercise, they immediately think, well, I have to run, which is not true. I mean, walking very quickly, you know, and doing it at least five times a week for 30 minutes, getting your heart rate up to a specific number and doing this in a coordinated fashion is quite a bit of exercise. You can actually increase that up to an hour, but exercise is great. But the idea is you have to eat well. For instance, you know, you eat a scoop of ice cream. It's almost 300 calories. You have to walk quite a distance to burn those calories. So you have, they go hand in hand. It's exercise in combination with eating a proper diet. More greens, more vegetables, more grains, you know, fiber. These are the important things that has to be taught relative to getting patients to understand and to lose weight and to reduce the burden of the underlying disease. Obesity. Ron, if someone is obese and they have no other underlying medical conditions, that patient is at risk. Obesity in itself has significant underlying inflammatory markers, 
which continue to perpetuate and destroy the inner vascular bed. You add to that hypertension, which we call put something like excessive stress on the endothelium. That makes it even a higher risk for developing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Add diabetes, which is a vascular disease. Diabetes, there is such a misnomer about it in the community. You go to the doctor and they say you have prediabetes. Well, that's because we have something called A1C. And if it's not 6.5, they determine that you are prediabetic and not diabetic. I tell my patients, Ron, have you ever seen a pre-pregnant woman? <laughs> no, you have the disease. So you start treating it from early. Studies have shown that pre-diabetes carry the same cardiovascular risk as a diabetic patient. So we must sort of get that mislabeling away and early intervention with reducing the risk of diabetes, hypertension, high cholesterol with that environment. Dr. Forte, what Amarin is doing with this podcast is, is, is making people aware of the issues and challenges that we face. And I've always believed awareness is always a big problem and making people aware of the challenges that we face. When you think of maybe just a podcast like this, what are other people doing to make people in our community aware of the challenges that we face with diabetes, with high blood pressure, with proper nutrition, proper diet? How do we make them more aware? Well, you know, when you look at the organizations like the American Heart Association, they basically recently issued a scientific statement highlighting the public health burden of cardiovascular disease, particularly in Hispanics, and calling for the development of culturally tailored, culturally tailored interventions and prioritizing of Latinos in the national health improvement goals. So we have to make it a comprehensive approach, and we have to go into the community and start actually recruiting those patients and looking and seeing what is the disparities that actually occur in those patients and what can we learn and what can we change. So those are things that we are actually, we should do and continue to do. Similarly, the NIH is also doing a Hispanic community study that they actually recruited about 16,000 patients. And this study began in 2004 and six rather, and will continue for 18 years up until in 2024. In so doing, they will learn so much relative to how these patients function, you know, learn about their ethnicity, about their, how they live, and how you can actually impact change by going through and telling them about the disease. You know, those are things that we need to do. We need to not just do research and say, okay, these are high risk. We need now to go and how do we change the dynamics of reducing the risk? In heart disease, there's basically what we call modifiable risk factors and non-modifiable risk factors. Let's start with a non-modifiable being, you know, genetic predisposition. If your family has a risk of heart disease and there's high penetration with individuals having heart attacks at a young age, well, sorry, you may not be able to change that gene. Being an older individual is a non-modifiable risk. Ron, being a male is a non-modifiable risk. However, on the opposite side, you have modifiable risk factors like hypertension. Obviously, we can work to reduce that. 
reduce obesity, reduce salt, exercise, diabetes. Similarly, the underpinnings of that is obesity. How do you actually teach individuals, relearn how to eat properly, add exercise, stop all the sweets, reduce the carbohydrates? These are things that you need to do. Cholesterol. All diabetics should be treated for cholesterol because all diabetics have something we call a very bad cholesterol. These are things that we need to teach patients. High triglycerides in a diabetic, very, very important. We never taught so much about it until now. We realize that triglycerides is just as important as cholesterol. So we should be talking about both, not one. Triglycerides and cholesterol because they're both detrimental in diabetics and patients with heart disease. Stroke, we have to teach all these things going to the environment and, and let it be known that we are going to be partners with you in actually understanding, reducing the burden so that we can actually have less economic burden of heart disease. Dr. Forte, thank you so much for educating me and our listening audience. You've been fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it very much, Ron, and I look forward to working with you in the future if I can. All right. Thank you so much. Joining us now is the CEO of Diabetes Sisters, Anna Norton. Anna has been involved with Diabetes Sisters since 2011 and has been living with type 1 diabetes since 1993. She is here with us today to discuss the effects of diabetes on underserved communities and how it can relate to other cardiovascular diseases. It is my pleasure to... uh, have with us today, Anna Norton. And uh, Anna is the CEO of Diabetes Sisters, and she has great information for us. And Anna personally was was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes back in 1993. Wow, that's a long time ago, Anna. You've been involved with Diabetes Sisters since 2011. Uh, you currently reside uh, outside of Chicago. But of course, it, when I look at your bio, it seems like you've been all around the country in North Carolina, New Jersey, and uh, great state of Florida, graduate of University of Florida in 1998 and Florida International 1999, well-educated. We love that. And, and you know, as, as a woman with diabetes, I know you're very passionate about it and your work with Diabetes Sisters has been absolutely fantastic. So welcome to the show, True to Your Heart, obviously presented by Amarin. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really, really happy and honored to be a part of this conversation today, not just because of my role at Diabetes Sisters, but also because of my personal life living with diabetes for the last 28 years, and also being a minority woman in this diabetes space and, you know, being a part of this journey with diabetes as a Hispanic Latina woman, and really thinking about a lot of the obstacles and challenges that people in underserved communities experience when it comes to life with diabetes and the complications that it can present. It's very, very important to me. I'm very passionate about it. And I'm, I'm very concerned about my community. Yeah, I, I love that passion. That is so important. And, and that's what it takes. And I know your focus has been on diabetes, but as, as we all know, there's a major risk factor for heart health. And that's what it's all about on this show in particular. But along with high blood pressure, obesity, high cholesterol, elevated triglycerides all come into play. And, you know, heart disease is a lot more common in African-American patients and 
Latino, Hispanic patients. And the reason for the increased prevalence of heart disease in these populations, a combination of genetic, environmental, and social factors, Anna, can you break down these factors for us? Well, yeah, and I I love that you bring that up because it's almost a conversation of what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about African-Americans and Hispanics specifically, you know, we think about what do our families look like, you know, and and in both communities, we, we are conditioned to believe that if we are bigger people, if we're heavier people, if we are raising children that are a little bit bigger, it means that they're healthier. And sometimes that's not what that means, you know, because we um, historically have not been educated on nutrition and on exercise and on the risk factors that we have as minority groups. So the fact that many African-Americans and Hispanics that are already predisposed because of their family history to situations like heart disease, uh, cardiovascular illness, heart attacks and strokes and triglycerides and high cholesterol, all of those things, we're also not educating the future generations on some of the challenges that we face. And so, you know, that becomes an issue of education and of journey and of really understanding disease. You know, we all know that, like I said, we all believe in minority groups that if we're bigger, we're healthier. I know for me growing up, my parents didn't have a lot of money. You know, I was raised in a Cuban household. We didn't have a lot of money. And if you didn't eat everything on your plate, that's a problem. Yep. You know, and I wasn't taught to eat until I was full. I was taught to eat until there was nothing left on the plate because we didn't have money to waste food. And so that is a cycle that generations like mine have begun to break Mm -hmm. when it comes to healthier eating, eating until we're full, being conscious of what we put in our mouths so that we can maintain a healthy weight so that women especially, we can have a smaller waistline so that we can mitigate some of those factors that can contribute you know, to our cardiovascular health as we get older and that we bring that to our younger generation and start to teach them younger about the value of healthier eating, healthy weight, physical activities, staying active, trying to do something to move your body every day and get those, those blood vessels pumping into your heart so that our heart is healthy. Anna, the word uh, awareness always seems to come up when we talk about fighting and beating these, you know, these horrible risks, these horrible diseases. And when I think about disease, I think of risk factors, the signs, the symptoms of heart disease for all those who may be at risk. How do we spread awareness of what the signs are? Well, we start as a family and we have these discussions and we start to say, what are the things that we know? Um, And if we don't know, we go to the next trusted person, which is our healthcare provider. In our communities, we do try to follow or at least go to see our healthcare providers and listen to what they're saying and have them teach us. Educators are wonderful. Nutritionists are wonderful. I realize that in underserved communities and in all communities, we may not always have access to that. But to understand the risk factors of heart disease, especially in minority communities, is very, very important. Something that I have seen a lot in my work at Diabetes Sisters is the power of community centers and health ministries coming in to educate the community. Mm -hmm. They're trusted places. They're places where we send our children, where our parents go, where our elder folks go for activities and for fun. 
And so to start to spread awareness there is wonderful and to bring in educators, physicians, and healthcare providers to start to talk about some of these risk factors and how to avoid, how to prevent heart disease. And then in some cases, how to treat it if some folks are already living with it. Those are really integral because, you know, sometimes we can't stop the prevalence of heart disease in our families, Mm -hmm. but we can certainly slow down the progression. We can learn to live better. We can learn how to treat it better. And it appears that genetics plays a role in diet and blood pressure and the implications of heart disease. And and I know there have been some studies that have suggested that African-Americans are particularly sensitive to salt, which can obviously lead to high blood pressure. Now, I'm I'm very fortunate. My wife loves to cook. And uh, the first thing she does, it's vegetables and fish and takes the salt away from the table. And, and, and it's made a difference. I've lost some weight because I'm not, you know, eating salt. I feel better. My, my blood pressure's down. So clearly, how important is genetics and diet to your health? Both are important and they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. We've talked a little bit during the show about what comes first, the chicken or the egg. And in this case, they go hand in hand. When, when we're talking about genetics and lifestyle, it's wonderful that your wife has eliminated sort of that, that salt on the table, which historically we have seen in a lot of households, not just in African-American or Hispanic communities, but also in Caucasian ones that there has always been table on the salt. And the truth of the matter is we really don't need that mm-hmm. because a lot of the foods that we prepare in the busy lifestyles that we live today are processed, you know, unfortunately, even the ones that are fresh. Even the ones that we're fortunate to have um, that we can pick up fresh at the grocery store, they don't need the added salt. They can be flavored in so many other ways. And that is really important as we teach our younger generation how to eat in underserved communities. How important, Anna, is fresh fruits, vegetables, and overall healthy foods? I have a foundation and one of our drives every year is to get fruits and vegetables into the underserved community. So how important is that? And and I believe I'm on the right track, but I want to hear it from you. Of course, if they're available to you, you know, then they are of utmost importance because of the nutrition and the fiber and the healthy calories that you're putting into your body when you're eating Mm -hmm. fresh foods and the flavors that come to that where you don't have to add salt. You, You know, you can stir fry your vegetables and they're delicious and they're colorful and they're attractive and they make you want to eat. But if you're not privy to that, right? And there are some communities that that don't have that, that don't have accessibility to fresh fruit and they have to go to their grocery store. You know, a really great option is frozen vegetables. Frozen vegetables are frozen at the peak, at the height of, of the bounty. So when they're most delicious and they can be microwaved, they can be heated over the stovetop, and they can be consumed in the same way. And that's really important to understand that as well. And they don't need any more sugar added to them, and they're not processed. So, you know, I understand that. I mean, I live outside of Chicago. There is a young gentleman who has created a sort of a bus mobile to bring fresh fruits and vegetables to the inner cities of Chicago. Oh, that's awesome. And that has been beautiful because these are food deserts in the middle of our city, right? And young people and and people of of my age, you know, and older generations have not had access 
because they don't have grocery stores close to them, because they're living in these urban areas. But to have this bus that comes out to them once a week with fresh fruits and vegetables, everything at the height of the season. So in the summertime, they're eating fresh corn and tomatoes, you know, and in the winter, they're eating Brussels sprouts and, you know, things like that. That's really, really important to teach our communities, our minority communities, how to eat better, how to eat with flavor, how to eat and enjoy the food. And I love, I love your example of taking away that table salt. <laughs> I'll, I'll thank my wife on that one. <laughs> I just, you know, there, there, there are just so many ways to flavor our foods that do not, well, we don't need to add sodium to them. You, you talked about nutrition and fresh fruits and vegetables, obviously very important. Number two, exercise. How important is exercise and how much exercise should you get in every week? So we should be exercising about 30 minutes a day. And by exercise, let's talk about getting that blood flowing, right? Right. Pumping that blood through our veins, not just lifting some weights. You know, we're talking, let's get out there and let's let's get a little bit of sweat sort of on our upper lip, right? Let's mm -hmm. get a little bit of sweat on our brow. And that can be accomplished in a lot of different ways. You know, again, I live in Chicago. It gets cold here. Yep. It gets really, really cold here. We don't want to go out, you know. Up and down those stairs, up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs, running in place. Let's dance a little bit. You know, after dinner, let's all get up and have a crazy dance party and let's put on our favorite music. Those are things that really get your heart going and are really important. So 30 minutes a day, three times seven, that's 200 minutes a week. You know, a little bit over that. Get it. We got to get it in, right? You know, yep. Right. Get it in. And if that's hard and for some people that is hard, you know, break it up. You know, if, if you're working, if you're watching your kids, break it up to 10 minute increments, get up, do something for 10 minutes, come back in a couple of hours, do something else for 10 minutes. One of the wonderful things that we do at Diabetes Sisters, we have a minority initiative program that talks about physical activity. And we always hear from a lot of women, they may be a little bit older and they're not physically active and they want to know what they can do to get that blood going. And we always say, you fold the laundry, right? You take care of your family. And they say, yeah. So I say, just put on some music and fold the laundry, <laughs> standing up and do some shimmy shake and have some fun. You know, I like you that. Right? And, and, and it adds a little bit of movement because doing something is so much better than doing nothing. So we have to start somewhere. Anna, it's now time for my favorite part of the show here on True to Your Heart podcast. Yes. Time for the Mythbusters, all right? Are you ready for myth number one? I am so ready. All right. <laughs> if you have heart disease, you should eat as little fat as possible. So I'm going to say that that is false. 100% mm. <laughs> false. So, yes, it's true that if you have risk factors for heart disease, high blood pressure, cholesterol, all of those things, you should eat a diet that's low in saturated fats. So those are the bad fats, things that come in like the Oreo cookies, those trans fats, you know, the fatty red meats, things like that. The unfortunately, like, you know, high, the high fat milks, your dairy mm. products, whole milk, things like that. But other fats, the unsaturated fats, those are really important for our development and for our growth. So when we talk about like the omega-3 fatties, you know, like the fat that you find in fish, that's really, really good. Yep. You know, salmon, 
really good. Mm -hmm. All of those things have fat in them. We talk about, you know, peanut butter. You can have some peanut butter. That's some good fat for you, you know? And again, as a Cuban, avocado, wonderful fat in your avocado, you know, real trendy. A lot of people eating avocado. It's really, really good for you. So those fats are really important in order to continue to develop and, and to not lose some of what makes us us, right. <laughs> you know, and by that, yep. I mean, you know, sort of the curvy, you know, African-American Hispanic population, because we don't want to lose what, what we look like that. That's what makes us, you know, sort of a good looking in our, in our community. All right. Spot on. You know, but it's, it's important to keep those in our diets. It is, it's important to have low fat yogurts and low fat milks and those kinds of things, because we need them. And our, our, our younger generations need those as well to grow and develop. Anna, you busted myth number one. Time for myth number two. I'm too young to worry about heart disease. Oh, another big fat false. <laughs> busted. I will, <laughs> I will speak from experience. I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 18 years old. Wow. Now, again, I come, I come from a Cuban family. My family is from Cuba. My father from when I was a young girl, already had heart disease, high blood pressure, high cholesterol. And so we were already fighting that. But to couple that with a young woman living with diabetes, it was never too soon for me to learn about heart health. 18 years old, I was already thinking about my heart. And why? Because women are predisposed to heart disease just because of the fact that we are female. And so that's really important. And living with an autoimmune disease like diabetes really adds that pressure to my heart, not to mention other organs of my body. So I started thinking about my heart when I was 18 years old. By the time I was 25, I was already, you know, speaking with my specialist about my heart and about ways to protect it. And as I've, you know, as I've progressed and I'm in my mid forties now, <laughs> um, you know, th that's, that's something that's very, very important to me because again, I'm predisposed because of my genetics, because it comes from my family, but also because I live with a, a chronic illness that can affect my heart. And thirdly, because I live in the society where everything is easy and fast. And I have so much accessibility to things that are may not be good for me, right? Or may not be good for my heart. So yes, but you know, you can start to develop plaque around your heart when you're very, very young, especially in our communities, because we have these environmental factors, we have these genetic factors, you know, 33% of Americans have heart disease. Wow. And these days, it's starting younger and younger. So it is never, ever ever too soon to start thinking about your heart health. Remember, that's the part of our body that controls all of the other parts mm. or that helps with all of the other parts and that gets that blood circulation going from, you know, our head all the way down to our toes. And so it's really, really important to protect that heart in both, you know, matters of the heart in, in the compassionate way, but also in the very physical way, which is what's going to keep us putting one foot in front of the other every day. All right, Anna, you uh, had both Miss Busted on True to Your Heart podcast. So uh, I really want to thank you for enlightening myself and our listening audience to incredible facts and, and, and the great work that you do, Anna. Keep up that great work. And, and thanks for being a very special guest. Anna Horton, the CEO of Diabetes Sisters, thank you so much. Thank you. 
That's going to do it for us today. I would like to thank both of our guests for joining me for the discussion. For more information on how you can be true to your heart, visit www.truetoyourheart.com. I'm Ron Jaworski, and this has been True to Your Heart, presented by Amarin. <laughs>